Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host, Pillar Editor-in-Chief. No. I usually say and there. I am, but I usually say and there. I I usually say, uh, you know, you you develop a cadence for these things, and then one wishes to maintain the cadence. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my See, now I've all, I've thrown myself totally off, uh, but you know, it is what it is. This is, uh, people, this is how, this is how the sausage gets made. I'm your host and pillar editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner, uh, and, um, and, and this week, sort of mountain man extraordinaire, Ed Condon. Ed, usually when we talk, you are, you know, um, in your office and you've got a big painting behind you, but right now, you're, I'm, I'm seeing a sort of Grizzly Adams version uh, of you. Uh, this is very much me in my natural environment, Yes. I, I I have well tell um, the people where you are and what you're doing. Well, sure. I am uh, in the middle of, uh, and this is this is where my mother's family are are from. Um, my grandmother and grandfather built a a cabin on a lake here uh, the year my mother was born, and so I've been coming up here every chance I get for every year of my life, and so this is very much where I where I would be all the time if I could, and you know given that. Uh, Washington is currently in the middle of a pestilential plague of cicadas. Uh, this seemed like a good time to get away. And, you know, I'll be honest, it's been, a, we've had a busy, we've had a busy week and it's been very helpful to, to have the lowest stress possible environment around me while we've been working. So I'm, I'm deeply grateful for that. I can imagine, I can see behind you I, uh, something like you're on a porch and I can see sort of an oil lamp behind you and a dinner bell and um, I don't want to give people, I know you're getting paranoid that I'm describing so many things that might help people to identify where you are, but, um, but I can also hear, it sounds like both the sound of maybe a babbling brook and also, um, some birds doing their, their chirping. So it sounds, I mean, you really do seem like you're in an, an idyllic situation. I am. I, I'm exactly where I want to be. Um, the, the sound that you hear is not a babbling brook. It's actually, there's, there's a nice breeze on the bay just at the moment. You know, the, the house is on a, a sort of well, there's no a, a muddy dip in the side of the lake, mm-hmm. uh, which is where I learned to swim as a child. And uh, there's a nice breeze moving across it. You know, this really is just the greatest um, part in the world. I, you know, the the local beer depot is is literally drive through, not drive alongside. You drive through it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an old carriage house that they've converted, which is great. Uh, the uh, the local VFW hall was open for beers at ten in the morning. Uh, this I know because I parked in front of it on my way to go to the diner to pick up breakfast. Um, you know, there's nowhere else I'd, I'd rather be. Um, yeah, I'd, one of our neighbors up here is a, a Mennonite family that I was chatting with earlier. Oh, they, and, the Mennonites, they are... So for those who don't know, Mennonites are in the Anabaptist tradition, but not not all the way to Amish. I mean, sort of, I don't think they appreciate being referred to as Amish light. No. Um, but I, no, but there, is, <laughs> there is a way in which that description might be seen to fit. In in the sort of wider cultural um, perception, they are uh, they're seen as sort of you know three quarters Amish, and uh, again that's that I know nothing about their theology, and I would not ever presume to describe them that way myself. <laughs> you can pick out the I mean there are a lot of Amish around uh, this area as well, but you can tell the difference between the two, uh, quite apart from which ones are driving pickup trucks and which ones are not, mm-hmm. uh, is that the Amish will always wear um, one color of shirt, whereas the, the Mennonites, you'll see families, and some of them will have orange shirts, some of them may have green shirts, you know, there's a little more, they're not quite as plain in yeah. their dress, mm-hmm. yeah. um, but they all have full lustrous Donegal beards, and they have the best hats, J.D. I yeah. deeply envy, I mean, I have, I was mentioning this to our neighbor, um, 
Oh, or, you, you told him how much you loved his hat. I, I've, I've mentioned this before. There's a, there's a Mennonite family that live around the corner and we were on, uh, my wife and I took a walk around the block yesterday and, you know, I, I said to one of them, you know, like, is there anywhere you can get one of those? Because they look really great at keeping the sun off and they look very light and sturdy and incredibly well made. And, you know, I'm not surprised and I don't begrudge them keeping them as a, as a treasured uh, secret and hallmark of their community. Um, you know, I'm a Catholic. I, we have some pretty cool hats. I have some pretty silly hats that go along with being Catholic. And, uh, you know, I respect the hat game. I wonder, I wonder, um, do you think there are Mennonites who would trade a Beretta for, well, I presume they, they have a sort of straw hat, a boater? Yeah, well, I mean, they have all. They have two. They have. They wear the straw hat in the summer, but then they have a, a sort of black felt one for the winter. Okay, so do you know that th- that that aligns? Do you know that that aligns with the norms of the Council of Baltimore? No, I did not know that. Does the Council of Baltimore prescribe basically it, Panama it hats for clergy? It, it does. So the the Council of Baltimore, you know, has a long section on clerical dress and prescribes that clerics should wear black wool or felt hats or wool and felt hats, I suppose, in the winter, and then. Um, straw hats in the summertime between probably some feast and another feast. So the, the, the Mennonites are down, I suppose, with the, with the norms of the Council of Baltimore. That's cool. That's also a useful way of identifying who are the fake trad priests is the ones who are wearing black felt hats in the summer because they don't know. They don't know. They don't know. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. At least if their particular brand of cosplay is to harken back to an, an earlier era of American clerical dress then indeed they don't know the thing. But if they're sort of, um, tr- if they're reenactors hoping to evoke a, a different era, then, then they would be, then they might, you know, they might be doing it right. Who knows? Yeah. So they're, I mean, they're, uh, do they, do the Mennonites next to you have a kind of a working farm? I mean, is that? Um, it, so there are a lot of working farms in the area, uh, a very lot, right, right up against the, the lake. Um, there it's mostly small houses with, you know, half acre at the yeah. most, one acre plots around them. Um, so there will be, you know, for example, there are several large Mennonite farms, particularly just over the, over the lake in the state of, and, uh, you know, so you see a lot of them will also have, have built sort of, you know, cabins where they'll, you know, they'll live in immediate proximity to the lake, uh, or, or come here, you know, sort of off the farm on, on different days. And that's because the fishing is, ex- is excellent on the lake. Um, as is the, as is the hunting. Okay. That, uh, you know, there's there's plenty of deer around here. There's there's plenty of um, of fish in the lake. You know, this is I'm this is all I need. I don't ever want to be anywhere other than this. If I hadn't married a city girl, uh, you better believe I'd be living here full time. I, I guess the reason I asked about the farms and um, and you've answered it for me is that I um, it is very hard. Leisure is, I believe, as you know, I, I truly believe, as Joseph Pieper says, that leisure is the basis of culture, and that leisure is the the thing which um, allows us to sort of um, exercise our minds in creative ways that mirror the creativity of God and to to form Christian cultures in various ways. And I think all of that's true. I have an extremely difficult time engaging in leisure, and um, all the more so if others are working around me. So I, I feel like if your vacation home were sort of surrounded by Mennonites out sort of hand plowing their field, it would be very, very difficult to be, you know, snoozing in the hammock at 2 p.m. Um, uh, well, at least the the family that live around the corner from us, they they relax with the best of them. Oh, good. At I'm least very from glad when I'm walking by, they you know they often will have a grill going. They will you know. Good. This is, you know, there's, it's just a different pace of life. I mean, I find it, I actually find it much easier to work in a healthy rhythm up here too. I was concerned when I decided I was going to work up here for the week that um, I would find myself being distracted by, by the one place in the world where I actually don't find it hard to relax. Right. Um, 
but actually I found it's a much more um, healthy rhythm of a working day that I find it in fact a lot easier to to focus in the appropriate um, kind of bursts necessary for a healthy working day rather than just basically downing two pots of coffee in a pack of Marlboro Reds and going at it until 730 at night yeah Yeah. well I'm good I'm very glad for that Um, I'd love to keep talking about your vacation home Ed um, but we can't you know and you know that Um, there are many many things that we should talk about because there has been a lot in the news this week but but before we get to that I'd like to talk about something else and um, you're just going to have to bear with me about that because I'd like to engage in a discussion with you about something else. Um, we are in the period of time that once was known as the Octave of Pentecost. And it's no longer known as the Octave of Pentecost because the Octave of Pentecost was in a formal way taken out of the church's liturgical calendar, I suspect, in 1969. But we are in, in the days following Pentecost in a time that once was a sort of con- in continuity with the Feast of Pentecost itself. And uh, sorry, go ahead. No, I say days of fire and days of grace. Sure, we are in the days of fire and days of grace. That's lovely. Um, and, uh, and, and that is an opportunity, I think, to talk a little bit about Pentecost and pneumatology. And uh, the reason I would like to do so is because, I, I don't know about you, but I have gotten a great many sort of questions from people uh, who read the pillar or listen to the show sort of about Pentecost and about even the Holy Spirit kind of in, in recent days. And, and, um, and so I think it's worth, uh, worth talking about a little bit. Uh, I have. I'm. I'm more than happy to talk about this. I have not received the the emails and messages that you have about this. I don't know for whatever reason, but our listeners tend to, when they email me, um, ask for my advice on how to sue someone they don't like. <laughs> they seem to seek spiritual advice they, from you. They I do. Don't. They do seem to seek spiritual advice from me. And what they don't know is that I'll help them sue damn near anybody. And you have deep spiritual insights, and so uh, they're just um, they're just perhaps not seeing that. But 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 that is what it is. Um, I, I just thought, you know, we, we it would be good it would be good to talk about the Holy Spirit. I think a little bit because um, in the life of the church generally, um, we we tend, uh, I, I think, in a very natural way. I, there's there's been a long-standing sort of interesting theological discussion about the way in which sort of the tradition of the Catholic West and the tradition of the both Catholic East and Orthodox East sort of talk about the Holy Trinity. And 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 to be sure, in the West, we talk mostly, I think, about the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And I, I honestly think in a natural way, given that Christ is incarnate and that we're members of the body of Christ and, and all of these things. But we tend less, I think, to talk about um, the Father and the Holy Spirit than we do um, to talk about Christ. And when we do talk about the Holy Spirit, we tend to do so in a very... Um, we tend to talk about the Holy Spirit in an institutional way, the way in which the Holy Spirit um, protects the church in, in certain ways, you know, the, to protect the church from erring, to, to give the charism of infallibility and inerrancy, these kinds of things. Um, but we don't sort of tend to talk about what it means to like sort of live in the Spirit um, as believers. And in a certain way, that's surprising because the, um, the epistles of the New Testament are sort of... Um, resplendent with that kind of language, right? With sort of being reborn in the Spirit, being alive in the Spirit, being these kinds of things. Um, and uh, and that's just not sort of the way in which we tend to talk about our experiences of faith very much, at least in my observation. And therefore, um, I think a lot of people probably have a, a relatively uh, limited understanding or perception or thought about the life of the Holy Spirit, sort of the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Church or in, or in our own lives. Um, I think those things overlap, but um, uh, so it seemed to me to be worth worth talking about a little bit. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I um, for myself, and I know this is a temptation that I that I face. I know it is because 
people like my confessor and spiritual director keep telling me that it's a problem for me Mm -hmm. um is that you know i'm a lawyer and uh you know a a journalist who you know tends to poke at things in a systematic way and that i can often fall into the trap of approaching the faith in a strictly intellectual disciplinarian mindset and so you know the, the the pentecost novena for example, leading up to the Feast of Pentecost, and also in the you know in the week immediately afterwards, you know what we used to call the octave, is a is a point at which I I try to focus in a in a a more disciplined, which is ironic that I immediately reach for the word disciplined, <laughs> um, but I try to focus in a more disciplined way in my own prayer about saying no, I really do need this sort of um, the sort of charismatic um, graces of the Holy Spirit. That the you know the works of uh, the, the the works of the Holy Spirit are the virtues that the things that I um, the things that I want to cultivate by habit I also need to have animated by grace the grace of the Holy Spirit so uh, no it is um, it's a very important feast and it's one that I think you're right that we have we we can as Catholics tend to minimize or feel slightly uncomfortable or squishy about the language because it is something that I think is is used in a in a is is much more common currency as language a lot, among a lot of evangelical communities mm-hmm. and not necessarily attached to proper theology right um but but because of that sort of um well-known mix i think a lot of catholics are like well that's that's what other people do we don't we don't talk like that when in fact no we're the ones who invented that language or, or there's um, a sense in which sort of the language of sort of being alive in the spirit or these kinds of things which are very sort of scriptural ways of speaking are thought of as sort of being 70s theological motifs right i mean that's just sort of like goofy sort of felt banner sort of theological mo- motifs you know in a way that is i think reductive as well sure and and i mean it goes to the point you know just because something was written on a felt banner doesn't mean that either the felt banner came up with it or it's necessarily wrong mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it just means that the felt banner is ugly but yeah but but i think the <laughs> that's right but you know um the question i think becomes okay so we, we can think about we can talk about the the holy spirit in a sort of um in in a in a, in a dogmatic way, in a systematic way, related to the hierarchical constitution of the church, um, and the sort of the sort of institutional guarantees that come from the Holy Spirit, um, we can also sort of talk um, in uh, um, we, we can talk about things like the fruits of the Spirit and the way that they impact sort of individual believers. But I, I also think there's a way in which they're they're especially because you and I think about the church a lot. We need to have a sort of um, pneumatological ecclesiology, if you will. Um, we need to think in a, in a <laughs> don't give me that look. Um, we need to, but we need no, to, JD, can I just ask, I would like you please for my own edification to spell pneumatological, whatever it was you just said. No, you would not because you know that I'll do it right. P N E U M A T O L I G I C A L E C C L E I S O L O G Y. Boom. I, Fair play. I think. I mean, I wasn't really paying attention in the middle there. I may have skipped over some stuff. But the point is, we do have to have a, we do have to have a thought about what it means to be uh, a part of the church, what it means to be um, members of the body of Christ, uh, of the people of God. That 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 relates to the mission and indwelling and character of the Holy Spirit that is given to um, believers. And and there are uh, there are sort of the fruits of the Spirit. You know, love, joy, peace, patience. But there are also uh, in First Corinthians, for example, Paul talks about the gifts of the Spirit, you know, that to, to one might be given understanding, to one might be given prophecy, to one might be given healing, you know, these um, these kind of real things that I don't think we very often think about, but that, um, but that point to the reality that 
um, part of our identity as believers is to be given um, certain... When I say charismatic gifts, what I don't want it to sound like is I'm just talking about like 1970s guitar music. What I mean instead is that part of the ordinary identity of believers is to be given like certain ways of building up the body of Christ that are manifestations of the Holy Spirit that can form us to Christ in in particular ways and that allow us to better witness to the gospel or proclaim the gospel or understand the gospel. Um, And and that those are... In, in the New Testament, seem to be ordinary expectations of the lives of believers, and I, I think um, remain, ought to remain in a certain way to be ordinary expectations of the lives of believers. I, I think that's absolutely right. And I mean, again, we, I, I think there's, you know, again, the temptation in, for many Catholics is to hear the word, um, you know, charism of the Holy Spirit or something like that, uh, and, and to immediately think, well, they mean speaking in tongues and handling snakes. And right. You know, the, to be clear, when St. Paul talks about these things, he's including other charisms, which are very much part of the daily experience and expectation of of most Catholics. And we don't tend to recognize them as being that. And we also tend to sort of exclude the fact that there is a charismatic grace attached to these offices and roles, things like catechist, preacher, teacher, things like mm-hmm. that. You know, we, we speak about all the time, but, you know, Father Father so-and-so gives is an excellent preacher. He gives great homilies. And you know, we tend to think that's just, you know, good rhetorical style. Like, well, right. no, a truly great preacher is one who's animated by the Spirit. Yeah. And and that means, you know, that, that point is really important because that means that individual believers are given certain gifts. And by the way, I, I don't think glossolia, speaking in tongues, is... Is, is it glossolalia or glossolalia? glossolalia? Yeah, it's glossolalia. Yeah, I, you know, I've never really known how to pronounce it, but I've always wanted to know how to pronounce it. Speaking in tongues. I, I don't think that speaking in, tongue, in tongues is necessarily a sort of unusual thing that should be kind of lumped with with um, with uh, uh, handling stakes. One reason I think that is because it uh, seems that... In the I, I writing, merely mentioned them both because they were both in the New Testament. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. I'm but, not... But being snitty, I'm saying those are the things that we tend to think of, and they're both in the scripture. It does seem that there is a that there are in the writings of, the, of 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 you know sainted mystics ways in which they begin you know to to experience the, some of these things like speaking in tongues that are not sort of um, you know just kind of like showy or pre- seem to be inauthentic, but seem to be coming from something which is very very deep and very very real. And I think we should expect that too. But your point about you know saying Father is a good preacher and there's a gift of the Holy Spirit there. That, that is kind of what I'm getting at, that the communion of the church and, and the assignment of um, roles, the recognition of roles, we tend to talk about these things in a very sort of legal way, but the recognition of roles, the discernment of roles, the, the, this is not just, um, ours is not merely a sociological or sociopolitical community, and people are not in, ought not be in positions merely for sociological or sociopolitical reasons, but that the, what, what, what I think is pointed to with the sort of charisms of the Holy Spirit is the way in which the church uh, helps is called to help believers identify the, the gifts which they have been given by the Holy Spirit and then to put them in the places where they belong in a discerning way. That that's a sort of ordinary part of the hierarchical ministry of the church is to do this discernment or, or to do this discernment with people, to have a clear understanding of what, or to begin to have an understanding of what the Holy Spirit has given them and and the, and then um, what, uh, per, what in what way that serves best to build up the kingdom. Yeah, I would I would absolutely agree with that. And, and that in itself is a gift, right? That that corresponds yeah. to to um, a, an ecclesiastical office, or is uh, aligned with an ecclesiastical office, or ought to be, um, but but is in itself a gift to be able to sort of do the discernment. That um, when you begin to see things that way, then I think you begin to see the church as a family of people who are each given, uh, you know, a communion of people who are each given different 
different different gifts, different capacities um, for the same purpose, rather than seeing it sort of merely as uh, um, uh, 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 sort of authoritatively vertical um, sociological community. The head is not the foot, is not the eye, is not the hand. Right, precisely. And and there's an equal dig. If all of those things are seen as sort of coming from the Holy Spirit, which is indeed true, there's a way in which there, the equal dignity of, of foot and, and head become much more manifestly clear. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, to understand, I mean, this is, uh, but I mean, this is the other sort of thing that we often lose. And I mean, this is a regrettable aspect of sort of Felt Banner's 70s Catholicism in this country is that uh, that distinction and dignity of the different parts of the body and their right ordering towards a common endeavor is what's often obscured. And it just becomes this sort of amorphous amoeba that we call the mystical body of Christ. Mm -hmm. And people don't say, well, we're all the same. It's just sort of this protean soup of, right. uh, of faith. And that's not what it is at all, that the body of Christ is very much ordered and the members are very much distinct and, yeah. and integrated in a particular way, as you say, for a particular purpose. This is something I always, um, you know, when I'm, when I'm trying to talk to people or teach canon law, the thing I always tell them is the church never does anything for the sake of being able to do or to have it that it's always oriented to a purpose that whenever there's law in the church the law is oriented to a purpose or oriented towards articulating some particular part of the church's mission that everything in the church is dynamic and dynamic in a particular direction which is the salvation of souls but that this is what the the fundamental identity of the church is as the body of christ is to affect the salvation of the world through the missionary dynamic that this is what gives not just meaning but movement and structure and and coherence to the life of the church and and I think I'm I'm glad you say that because I think that points to the way in which the Holy Spirit conforms us at a personal level and at a corporate level more closely and concretely to Christ. That um, in the same way that Christ conforms us to the Father, the the Holy Spirit sort of gifts us in different ways, or you know gives us the, the immediate sort of fruits of the Spirit, which are love, joy, peace. Those are those things conform us more concretely to the person of Christ, and so too do the various sort of both an institutional and personal kind of giftings of the Holy Spirit can form us as both as individuals and as uh, and in a corporate way to the person of Christ um, and, and for the mission and identity of the incarnation, which is the salvation of souls. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So that's the thing. I, I Anyway, just want to talk about that for a little bit. When, I was not expecting that, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. Me too. When I went to Steubenville, you know, I went to Steubenville back in the day. You, I don't know. You're not from America, so I don't know how much you know about the Franciscan University of Steubenville, but um, it is a... I, I know some. <laughs> yes, you do. My uh, affection for the university, the Franciscan University in Steubenville is not, is not minimal. It's, 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 it's growing. It's real and growing. What do you attribute that to? Just reasons. <sighs> the quality of the people okay good enough at any rate especially um, the teaching staff <laughs> at, yeah at any rate um i you know it, the franciscan university of Steubenville is an interesting place because it, it the history of it essentially is that it was one of these places that sort of was founded for the sake of like um gis who were coming home on the gi bill after the second world war and wanted to go to college and so it was a very sort of regional uh, you know college um the, that served people who were in exactly that situation and it had that identity for quite a while and eventually it became a very um secularized as the story goes it became a very sort of secularized and sort of party party place and then had this um had this renewal that did not make it perfect by any stretch of the imagination but that imbued it 
with a Catholic identity and, and that by which it aimed to form students with a Catholic identity. And I know, listeners, that there are any number of criticisms that you might make of the Franciscan University of Steubenville, and I probably would too, but it's not what I'm doing right now. What I'm doing right now is just saying, you know, this was, it had this period of renewal, and the period of renewal coincided with the, uh, the sort of charismatic renewal movement in the Catholic Church, which is a subject that I find fascinating. If I were not a journalist or a canonist, I've sometimes thought that I would love to be a, a, a sociologist of religion studying the history and identity of the charismatic renewal. So anyway, doesn't matter. Um, there there was, at the time that I went to Zoomville, a very sort of strong, charismatic, uh, in the little seaway, identity and culture among students. And, and that sort of diminished over time. But in my time, it was sort of like... <laughs> It was almost sort of a social expectation such that kids, you know, you knew kids were feigning. The, some kids, I think, perhaps had real spiritual gifts, and other kids were sort of feigning the gift of tongues to kind of be, uh, you know, in, in the in the in crowd or... Um, in the in or, crowd or just not to be the odd guy out? Yeah, maybe not to be the odd guy out is, is more appropriate. Yeah, and so, you know, you'd, you'd see it and, and, and other sort of excesses Wait, of... Um, hang on. When you can tell the difference... Is that the gift of interpretation? It probably is, right? Well, that's what I was going to say is I don't ah. think I have the gift of interpretation, but you can tell with very natural virtues, you know, that some, some kids are just to not, to sort of not be the odd guy out feigning this. And, and it was, you know, I mean, it was kind of hokey in, in many ways, the way in which that thing kind of translates into student culture. But when I discovered that like real mystics had some of these same gifts that were not impacted by the fascinating sort of history of American Pentecostalism and and, charis- and, the char- and charismatic culture, but that in other cultures and other times, real mystics have had some of these same gifts. It, it just absolutely fascinated me because it is a demonstration of their veracity and in a certain way, a demonstration in which providence and dare I say the Holy Spirit sort of manifests at different times according to like in, in, ver- in sometimes in very unusual ways emerging kind of culturally and, um, and, and even psychologically um, in, in very unusual and interesting ways. So, yeah. 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 So, all right. You want to talk about the news? Sure. Okay. I mean, you know, that's kind of our thing. That is kind of our thing. I just, uh, I didn't want Pentecost to pass us by. Pentecost, by the way, was uh, for my diocese. This is where we're going to start. Pentecost was from, this is news. We're talking about the news now. Pentecost oh, okay. was. Uh, I thought you were about to circle back and do Pentecost again. I was like, oh boy. <laughs> now, pretty soon I'm just going to start singing praise and worship songs at you. Okay. Um, uh, that's a thing in American Catholic culture that and, and, I, I honestly don't know what that means. Like I'm familiar <laughs> no, with the phrase. It keeps, I've heard it said many times and it's often said um, with tones of one kind or another. So, I mean, I, I feel like it's, there's more to it than the plain text meaning of the words. I'm going to take you to a thing. I'm going to take you to a thing. Actually, there's a fascinating, in your neck of the woods, not not your part of the state that you're in right now, but in your ordinary neck of the woods is a, is a charismatic covenant community, not unlike the one that just as Amy Coney Barrett was, is a member of, but a, a different one. And they have these um, uh, these periodic evenings of praise and worship, and, and they pray with each other in intercessory ways and things like this. And I've been a few times, and it's interesting because it's not, their expression of the charismatic renewal is sort of not the sort of oft kind of commercialized version of it that came to pervade, I think, um, late 90s and early, early um, 2000s suburban Catholicism, but a very sort of different expression of it that is worth worth seeing and struck me at least as having probably more authenticity i'm an open-minded and curious man this is not about me but but it is true at the same time that the, that the uh, what began sort of with the zuzus street revival and then the duquesne revival and all these things in the history of sort of american charismatic renewal it's interesting the way in which they did become sort of i don't want to say commercialized but certainly integrated without a wholesale understanding of them into certain expressions of catholicism for a period of time to be sure that i find fascinating anyway 
in my Arcises, um, the Arcises of Denver, where I live, uh, the Pentecost was um, the end of the dispensation of uh, of the Sunday obligation, the return to the Sunday obligation, um, and uh, and I think in many other dioceses as well. And one thing that has been asked, and I'm curious about your thoughts about this, is um, whether or not the uh, the end of the dispensation, the return to the ordinary circumstance of obligation to Holy Mass, assistance on Holy Mass on Sundays, um, will um, lead to a, a much higher attendance rates at Mass than have been um, uh, than, than people have experienced in recent weeks or recent months as the pandemic kind of no longer sort of dissuades people from going to Mass as, as consistently, uh, or whether people who kind of got out of the habit of going to Mass over the last year and a half will find themselves remaining out of the habit. Um, I, I think I've said before, and I, I stand by it as a prediction, that in some places you will see a return uh, almost to, if not even to pre-pandemic, possibly even more than pre-pandemic yeah. levels. And I think in other places you will see a, a, a real drop-off um, manifested and it will and it will stick and I think it will ha- it will have everything to do with the the way in which the faith was being lived spiritually um, before the pandemic that you know there it's not to say that there is no virtue and no no um, grace available through the sort of habitual practice of the faith without um, intentional and spiritual engagement with it of course not you know you, you receive the sacraments you receive the sacraments and the, they are effectual with grace um, the you know, just by the fact of your of your receiving them properly disposed. But I think in many places people who who went to mass and weren't fully um, weren't fully engaged with what they were receiving, I think will have spent a year or more away from mass in situations of hardship, whether it's socially or financially, you know, through the pandemic and lockdowns and things like that, who will be feeling very acutely the lack of mass and the Eucharist and may not understand that that is what it is that they are lacking. Um, I think mm-hmm. there will be a lot of people who, who don't come back to church because they only, as far as they understood it, went out of sort of habit and, um, and cultural disposition beforehand. And now, um, you know, we'll find it hard to take that habit back up again. But I, I think the, the places that you will see the least drop off and possibly even growth, uh, coming out of the pandemic and you know with the sort of the return of the sunday obligation will be those parish communities where mass was attended joyfully and intentionally pre the pandemic was missed acutely during the lockdowns and people coming back i think in some places are going to be looking for approaching the return of the sunday obligation with an evangelical spirit and saying i can go back but i want to you know i want to bring someone with me i want to uh, you know, I'm looking forward to this so much. I'm so happy to have this back. This is a joy that can be shared. And and I think that is happening in some places. I mean, I went to Mass um, where I am here on Sunday. And I would confidently say it was as full as I would ever have seen it um, on a on a May Sunday. And, you know, that's that's great. I That's what I would hope and that's what I would expect. I mean, again, this, was, this is a particular community that is very... Um, well-formed and, uh, you know, intentional in its practice of the faith, not just individually, but as a body, that there is a recognizable um, 
coherence and identity to the Catholic community of this place, and that it's mutually supportive and very interdependent that way. And so I think that helps sustain the faith. And I mean, we've talked a lot on the podcast in the past about the future of the parish and the sort of ordinary parish structure of diocese in the United States and what the future holds for that. And I think um, those places where the parish is not lines on a map, but a true um, portion of the people of God, those are the places that are going to do um, get back to normal the fastest. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's right, and it's very well said. I I want to go back to what I was saying about the Holy Spirit, though. I'm so sorry, because um, <laughs> oh, I wanted to concretize. I realized as you were talking, I didn't concretize something. We had a monster news week, and we're not even going to get to that story. I know, and I'm kind of doing that. At, I'll tell you why I'm kind of doing that. Because I think our reporting on a lot of the stuff that we've been reporting on this week really stands for itself, and there are other things that we can talk about, and we can ta- we can give ourselves permission for that. Plus, it, what I have found with our listeners more and more frequently is if we if we are not a tight sixty minutes, I find that our listeners are forgiving, and uh, these are things worth talking about. So you know, this is what it is, buddy. All I want to say is this: my point about being a discerning community is manifested in this. Um, it is the obligation of the church to discern those who ha- you know who might be called to like you know particular sort of vocational ministries, sacramentalized ministries, ordained ministries, and uh, and not sort of, and that none of that can be discerned in a vacuum. And and so an example of what I was sort of saying about sort of dis, the discerning community, as it were, is, is the notion that no one can be sure of, of his own volition, for example, that he has a vocation to be a priest, right? Um, no one, can, are you getting all that, um, the kids in the background? Faintly, but not okay, not yeah, to okay. a, not to an unpleasant degree. Okay. The sounds of your children are as beautiful as the sounds of the bird on my end. And, yeah, yeah. You know. <laughs> no one can say of his own so with with uh, with certitude of his own discernment. I am called to be a priest. Why? Because the caller is the church, right? Um, that the that that is the church, which is you know ma- manifested in this case in the person of the bishop, who must discern whether this person. Uh, is to be a you know is is indeed fit right suited gifted um, to be a priest for this community and then to to actually do the calling one can't sort of be called interiorly but it is the responsibility of the bishop to do that not only sort of in a in a not not exclusively in a sort of um, uh, uh, rationalistic way or or mechanistic way but to to actually do some prayerful discernment, some some genuine time in front of the Blessed Sacrament about candidates for orders and whether or not they do indeed seem you know appropriate to call to orders in a particular place. That that is that that's an expression of the of the sort of um, uh, discerning community that still exists, it, it, but you know it's probably a little bit more sort of um, systematized now. And you know it's I you know I think most of the time it's not as if sort of the community is coming together in prayer to help the bishop pray about whether each person ought to be sort of called to, to the priesthood. Although it's interesting because there are some ecclesial movements that do some things like that, that sort of identify young men who seem like potentially might have vocations and sort of suggest to them that perhaps the Lord is calling them that in an intentional way. But, you know, it's an example of, I think, the way in which the church can, beyond priesthood, in, in which the, the, the authority of the church can do discernment with the baptized, with all of us, um, about the gifts which the Holy Spirit might have given us and the way in which that might be expressed. And pastors can do that. You know, pastors can take up as part of their ministry. Let me discern with you the ways in which the gifts which the Lord has given you and the ways in which God might be calling you to use that. Um, parents can do that with their children. It's, I think it's probably something that's mostly outside of the ordinary reality of the Christian life, but I, I don't think that it, it should be. No, I would agree with that. Um, I personally think we should... Uh return to the sort of more ancient practice in in the liturgy, which has largely been lost. I mean, there's sort of, you know, um, I mean, you'd call them sort of healed over scars in the liturgy of the West. 
uh, where these things used to used to take mm-hmm. place. But they're still very much a part of the liturgy in some Eastern churches and some Orthodox churches, where um, candidates for for particular ministries, for example, uh, ordination to the priesthood or consecration as bishop, um, the congregation is invited to voice its votum, whether axios or anaxios, worthy mm-hmm. or unworthy. Right. Right. Um, and, you know, there have been occasions in history where, you know, a bishop candidate has been presented in a diocese and the congregation have shouted with one voice, anaxios, he is unworthy, yeah, yeah, we yeah, won't take yeah. him. Um, exactly. I, and I think this, I, and I, it's not to say that I think people should be crowding out their cathedrals to shout unworthy at their at people who are appointed bishop of their diocese. On the contrary, what I am saying is it would be a beautiful thing if the communities that were producing vocations to the priesthood um, had a more vocal role, not just in you know the formation of young men and the, the helping of the discernment process, but also in the presentation at the end. That you know when a man um, is being presented for for ordination to the priesthood, that it's that it's clear that he doesn't sort of spring up fully formed um, out of the ground. That he's a product of a community, a community of faith that will have raised him and nurtured that vocation. And I think that can't be recognized uh, too much. And I think, and I think, for, for the expansion of that, it would be a beautiful thing if more frequently, those in positions of authority, whether the sort of natural authority of of a, of a family or the spiritual authority of being a pastor, thought about a part of their role to be helping with that sort of discernment um, on on the level of individuals and the level of the community, and inviting others to help with that discernment too. I mean, um, the idea that we might um, be praying to to better recognize in in one another, or sort of the movement. Uh, of the Holy Spirit and the way in which we are called to participate in the mission of the church cuts hard against um, the temptations towards individualism and con- and sort of uh, con- consumerist re- recipientism um, th- that tend to sort of plague us as Americans who practice the faith. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Cool. Thanks for letting me go back to that. Um, do you want to talk? I don't know. I mean, do you want to talk? <laughs> do I want to talk about the news? You want to talk about the news, Ed? Well, I, I do. There's a, there's a couple of things that I want to talk about since the last time we recorded. The first of which would be um, you wrote a truly mind-bending five and a half thousand words uh, as the sort of capstone on your on your recent trip to the Diocese of Knoxville, which I remember when... Okay, so when you were writing this, you sort of sent me a message and said, what's the, what's the maximum length I can go on this? And I said... Ah, 1750, 2000 max. And I thought I was being generous because in general, our... That's, that um, tends to be at the very, very, very the upper outer limit. Like, you know, if you want if you want to make one good point in, in good writing and you want to make sure people are going to read the whole thing, 900 words is about your outer bound. You can go 1400 mm-hmm. in an analysis if you're really writing it well and holding the... Yeah, yeah. So I thought, you know, well, Jay's a good writer. He's got a lot to fit in here. So yeah, 2000, you wrote back, oh... <laughs> I think in 2,000 words, I was just warming up. Yeah, you, you said, I was thinking more like five to seven. And I went, what? <laughs> but, uh, you you know, you ended up um, finishing it, you know, five and a half thousand. And I was, I, I was riveted. I, I read the whole thing and then I read it again. And I think um, and certainly the feedback I've gotten is that a lot of other people did too. And I think it is, you know, we talked before about you going to Knoxville for nearly a week um, at the invitation of Bishop Sticka and discussing the trip is really kind of a proof of concept for the whole thing of what we're trying to do at the pillar. And I think if that is the output, if that is the final output, then I think the concept has been proved. Well, thanks. thanks. I mean, thanks for saying that, but it's interesting because it's always the case. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, that was sort of, I think, 
the uh, the end of sort of stage one of our reporting on the situation of the diocese of Knoxville, but but um, you know that that long profile that I did of Bishop Sticka and I tried to and, you know and tried to identify some of the things that people were saying were, were issues in the diocese, um, but but the reporting is secondary to the to the to the situation. And what I find sort of interesting about the diocese of Knoxville is that it is a situation in which since kind of Vosestis and all the things that we talk about, a set of complaints has been made about a diocesan bishop, and some of them allege something that touches upon Vosestis, namely the sort of interference or cover-up of, not not cover-up, but the interference of an investigation of sexual misconduct. There's a question about whether it's technically Vosestis or not. But then all these other issues that people say exist with leadership culture and, and financial administration and sort of the relationship between bishop and priest. And the question is always, how will the Holy See handle these? We, we, we know that... Um, uh, although no one has confirmed it for us, uh, no one official has confirmed it for us, um, uh, we we know anyway that um, some preliminary stages of an investigation into the situation in the diocese have been have begun. Um, but even that, that there has not been an official confirmation of it, that there has not been official sort of notification of it, points to something which we've been talking about for a while, which is that these investigations tend to be done in secret. And 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 what I find interesting about that is what the priest of Knoxville told me is. The fact that these investigations are being done in secret is the reason why they wanted to talk to a journalist instead of just talking to the investigator. Because th- when the when investigations like this are done in secret, there is no credibility built, no confidence established among people who rely on this system of justice and accountability, um, because they have not seen examples of it in in the past. Right? I mean, justice. The, the sort of the point about transparency of justice is not just to satisfy our curiosity that we all want to know. It's it's that. Um, we believe in the integrity of a thing and the reliability of a thing when we have seen it demonstrated. Trust is earned, to put it simply. And um, and so there there remains, and I think sort of it's demonstrated in the way in which the Knoxville story was reported, and, and that, you know, people wanted to talk to a journalist so freely and so openly about their concerns. There remains, I think, uh, among priests, the people who I was speaking with primarily, a skepticism uh, about the way in which um, these things will be investigated and about the sort of notion of Episcopal accountability from the Apostolic See. And that's that's something that I hope Rome is recognizing, although the fact that this this investigation hasn't been sort of publicly announced in any way does not demonstrate to me that, um, that, that sort of people at the secretary level or prefect level have really recognized why it is, at least that priests in the American church are saying this kind of transparency is important to them. I'm going to ask you a question and you are going to think I'm trying to be funny or facetious. And I'm assuring you up front, I'm not. I'm being entirely serious. Do you think it's possible that the reason an investigation on the ground, which we know is going to happen, and as you said, is sort of, you know, kind of begun nibbling around the edges, but the reason it hasn't sort of started officially and and been announced officially or confirmed in any way, do you think it's because they're waiting for the journalist who was wandering around the diocese doing an investigation to leave town? <laughs> well, I have, right? I have left town. So. No, I know, but I'm, it, you know, this is your first week back. I'm, I'm not being sarcastic when I'm asking this. I'm, you know, it, I... We reported on the initial complaints that um, went to Rome more or less in real time. Um, you were invited to Knoxville by Bishop Sticka and went there and, you know, talked to a lot of people. I don't know that I wouldn't, if I was the investigator, whom we believe with some certainty to be Archbishop Kurtz as the Metropolitan, I would want to read and have all of that before I formally kicked off. Oh, that's an interesting, that, that's an interesting point. I, I was thinking more about sort of the notion that 
I guess this isn't, I, I don't think this is the butterfly effect, but I can't remember what the name of this thing is that, that, you know, we can't have it been in a place without having changed the place. Um, is, yeah. I mean, in physics, isn't it the particle wave theory, the act of observing a phenomenon yeah, changes it? Thank in, you. Yeah. Right. Precisely. Right. That, 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 that's the case here too, that, um, I, I was thinking, are you saying, you know, that you're, it's true, right. In journalism, that the act of observing the thing and documenting the thing changes the unfolding narrative of the thing. And, and I, you know, one hopes that that's a mechanism of public accountability, but there can be other sort of effects of it too. That could be, you know, I, I, I do not think it would be silly. I think to think that, um, a, a duly appointed investigator of the apostolic sea would be waiting around to see what JD Flynn reported for him. Um, I think I do not, I, 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 I do not think that that would be the case. Um, I, I do hope that our reporting on this and many other issues provides a mechanism of account of public accountability, but I think an archbishop would be, I would hope an archbishop would be confident enough in his own, um, capacity to oversee something like this, that he wouldn't sort of be waiting around to see what Flynn says about it. I don't think it's a question of, of competence or capacity. I just think it, you know, I, I'd want all the available information before I started it myself. If I knew there was more information coming in, especially if it was, I knew it was coming in a public forum. I mean, the church does this all the time with canonical procedures is they say, well, hang on, if something else is going on, we don't want things going on in parallel. Well, we do say, for example, in penal processes, we don't want a criminal proceeding going on in the same place. But that's not because we want the act of the criminal proceeding. It's because we really don't want our process to potentially be subpoenaed in a criminal process, right? right. We sometimes benefit from the act of the criminal process or the same thing with an, an annulment proceeding. Um, why do American tribunals say, and it's sort of, it's, it's a, it, is, it is a near binding norm, but it's not precisely the law, but why is it the case that in American tribunals, it would be extremely unusual for an American tribunal to consider a petition for, uh, regarding the validity of a marriage until there was a divorce, right? Why? Um, one is because we have to have some, you know, certitude we have to sort of have, have satisfied ourselves that the couple is not going to reconcile that there is and in fact, an the law, irretrievable right, breakdown of the union exactly and the law does say that you know the tribunal should ask itself or even potentially sort of um consider the possibility with the parties of, of reconciliation before considering the validity of the marriage so one that 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 serves as some concrete evidence of uh, unlikely reconciliation but two um tribunals wait until people are divorced to some extent, because they really don't want to get the tribunal proceedings potentially dragged into divorce proceedings or custody proceedings or something like this. Yeah, right? absolutely. Well, and, and sometimes that has happened in places. Right. And it's it's a messy thing. And you try to, yeah. you know, you try to assert the, the diocesan attorney would try to assert a, a privilege, you know, a religious privilege. And uh, uh, many judges would respect that religious privilege, but there are some who wouldn't. And then you'd have to litigate it and it becomes a whole expensive to do. And the judge yeah. generally doesn't want that. Right. And so she, generally she... She waits. She sort of defers to the civil process because she doesn't want to seem to be in conflict with them. But I don't know. That's possible. Anyway, um, we, we shall see. I think that investigation is underway. I think it's an interesting um, situation. I pray for the people of Knoxville, but I also think it's an interesting situation because it's not because um, there is the allegation of a of sort of interference in an investigation, but then all this other sort of um, administrative relational and and uh, and and um, and governance stuff that has arisen as well. And we'll see how the Holy See deals with that. But. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that we reported this week, a story that we've been chasing for a couple weeks, on the podcast last week, I said that we had been chasing a story for a while, and we had been, and we reported it on Tuesday, um, and it was this. Uh, a group of bishops, um, 68 bishops, in fact, is the number that we have, I think, triple confirmed at this point, 68 bishops um, uh, of the United States sent a letter uh, to Archbishop Jose Gomez, the president of the U.S. Bishops' Conference, requesting that all 
conference activity on the issue of Eucharistic coherence uh, come to a halt, that committees, namely the doctoral committee, working on the question of Eucharistic coherence, um, suspend their work, that the, a discussion, a planned scheduled um, and duly ordered discussion of Eucharistic coherence planned for the June virtual meeting of the OCCB be, uh, be taken off the agenda, and that um, bishops begin a, a process of sort of meeting at a regional basis, and then subsequently, um, you know, that, that, those, that re- those regional basis lead to further conversations um, at various levels before anything be done on the subject of Eucharistic coherence, which is an which is an, uh, a, a, a topic that the bishops have said that they want to be talking about for quite some time and that we have been talking about for quite some time. But anyhow, the bishop, 68 bishops sent a letter to, uh, to Archbishop Gomez asking that this stuff come to a halt, citing the Ladaria letter, which we've talked about, the CDF Ladaria letter, in which Ladaria has come to a consensus, saying directly, we don't think we have consensus on the things Ladaria says we should come to consensus about, which Ladaria says that they should come to consensus about the fact that Catholic politicians can't support pro-abortion policies, um, and uh, and suggesting a much uh, a process that would be much, much slower um, under, the, uh, under the guise that that's the appropriate response to the Ladaria letter. Uh, Gomez, uh, Archbishop Gomez, um, wrote to the bishops on Friday telling them, uh, not mentioning that letter, but wrote to all the bishops of the U.S. saying, this is on the schedule. It was scheduled appropriately according to the ordinary process of our of our conference. And, um, and here's an outline of the thing that we're talking about, which is a broad teaching document on the Eucharist and sort of the integration of the Eucharist in, in life, such that the Mass and the Eucharist really are the source and summit uh, of the Christian life. And, uh, and that's where things are, save for the fact that now um, many bishops are saying that they're really quite surprised by this letter and and discouraged that bishops would sort of try to pressure, as they see it, Archbishop Gomez to uh, change the schedule, contravening USCCB policy, and and um, and try to sort of delay a discussion. Uh, the perception seems to be, at least among some bishops, that this is an effort to um, d- delay to the point of uh, irrelevance or to sort of throw up as many sort of administrative and procedural roadblocks as possible to a discussion that some bishops have said they really don't want to be having, which is this discussion about Eucharistic coherence and the way it relates to um, uh, Catholic politicians and, and the question of abortion. Well, so there is that. And I mean, we read and reported this uh, this outline for the document. So, I mean, to be clear, there is no document on Eucharistic coherence, which I'm growing sick of as a nilogism. Um, <laughs> but anyway, Do there is no document on Eucharistic coherence. There's an outline for a document that could be drafted on Eucharistic right. coherence. And in June, they will vote on whether or not to have that document drafted. And then they would meet again, probably in November or maybe even later, depending on how long it took to then amend and debate and discuss and play with, and then eventually vote on the actual text of the documents. So this isn't even a question if you know, well, they don't want to come up with a document in June. It's a question if they don't want to talk about whether or not they should come up with a document in June, which is, you know, a little, um, convoluted i think Mm -hmm. but also the entire idea that this is all about joe biden and catholic politicians who support abortion and can they take communion i mean the the proposed document the outline for the proposed document has got three chapters each of which has three or four subheadings of which the idea of quote-unquote eucharistic coherence and you know reception of communion and all that is one part of one section you know, so this is the the so-called untouchable third rail flashpoint here is is a fraction of the total content of what the bishops are proposed to talk about. And I have to say, from my perspective, when you see Catholics, uh, public Catholics, particularly public Catholic politicians like, for example, Senator Tim Kaine discussing with such profound ignorance 
and I don't mean ignorance as you know as a pejorative. I just mean you know ignorant of the true teaching of the church. Um, the you know his views on the sacramental economy. That the primary thing that this document is for, said Bishop Kevin Rhodes in his sort of cover sheet for it. He's the chairman of the Committee on Doctrine. Said there is clearly an educational need, a pressing educational crisis in the in the church in the united states that people don't know what the eucharist is people don't understand what the eucharist means what it's for that there has to be um a, a real kind of formation offered to to catholics in the united states and i think you know we we did a, a bonus episode of this podcast earlier this week um with archbishop corleone and and he said you know crisis is the understatement of the year when it comes to when it comes to this. And I think that's true. So I think trying to have a document that comes at this from a catechetical, instructive, pastoral um, perspective, and that recognizes the real crisis of formation among the faithful on the most, on the source and summit of Christian life, I think is, is a good thing. I have been slightly surprised at the at this sort of concerted effort. I mean, we know we, we, we reported that there were 68 signatories um, to this letter. We now know that at least one of them, uh, which we reported Cardinal, Cardinal Dolan, Dolan took his name off, took his name off um, particle wave theory, perhaps. Uh, the Also, we, you know, we've heard other bishops say that they know the other bishops have taken their names off. I'm not aware of who they are, though. So um, there's that. But um, I'm surprised at this, you know, um, attempt to sort of quietly pressure the leadership of the conference out of its own proper process because you know what we've seen the vatican emphasize over and over again um even in the last few weeks is they want a synodal church they want the bishops to meet together to talk together to debate to have a, a structured and extensive discussion where you do that in the bishops conferences in the meetings of the bishops conference and how you set the agenda how you proceed in an orderly you know, in some cases, and this is what, um, you know, Archbishop Cordelia said, sometimes it's a bit laborious, it's a bit long-winded, it's a bit cumbersome, but that ensures the, the, that everyone has a voice, that there is as much consensus as possible. I'm just, I'm surprised that in the face of Pope Francis calling for an ever more synodal church, there's this attempt to sort of subvert the, the, the most consistent and primary function of collegiality amongst the U.S. Episcopacy. I find that very odd. I'm not, I don't, and I find a lot of BS in what's, what's being said right now. Not by you. Oh, um, but I, I find a lot of, wow. Tell me how no, you really feel, JD. No, I, I find a lot of BS in what's being said. Not by you. I, I think that's what you think. And, you know, but I, I, I find a lot of BS in what's being said right now. I, to be perfectly honest, to, to some degree on all sides of this. And here's what I mean. This is about Joe Biden. The idea of a document on Eucharistic coherence, the bishops are saying, no, 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 it's not. And then these other bishops are saying we should pray about it more. But the idea of a document that is now on a, about a thing called Eucharistic coherence began with the working group on Joe Biden, right? The, the Archbishop Gomez announced in January. And from that working group, they said, we need to have a document that addresses this question of Catholic politicians who support uh, expanded legal protection for abortion and whether they can come to the Eucharist, which is a thing that Catholics in America have been talking about since 2004, that is the thing that I think the document that the bishops plan to, to write, I've read it, or excuse me, I haven't read it, it doesn't exist. I've read the outline of it and the outline of it, yeah, reads like a broad catechetical document. But why in 2021, 
Um, do they want to write the document? And on the other side of the coin, why in 2021 is there so much opposition to the document? Because the things about the whole, this whole conversation is a proxy fight uh, about Joe Biden and most especially about sort of the church, differing, radically differing perceptions on how the church ought to engage with um, in public life uh, on a broad level and especially how the church ought to engage with um, Catholic politicians who hold positions that are contrary to the teachings of the Catholic Church or at least a set of p- positions that are contrary to the teachings of the church. And And I think... I'm glad that the debate is coming out in the open. I really am. I'm glad that there's conversation about it. But I think that most bishops, if you really ask them, would say, yeah, there's a lot of catechesis that we need to do about the Eucharist, and we want to do it. But at the same time, this conversation is about pro-choice politicians and, and Holy Communion. And the way that we can know that is because there's a big freaking public fight going on in the pages of America and Catholic World Report and people, you know, and, and various other places about precisely that issue. Nobody denies that the Eucharist is the source and the summit of the Christian life, or that we, uh, I hope that no one in the Episcopate denies at least that the Eucharist is the source and the summit of the Christian life, or that the Eucharist ought to be the center of our lives, or that we ought to have a more Eucharistic spirituality, or that more Catholics should understand the doctrine of the real presence and what it means and what it doesn't mean. No one denies that thing. The thing that they're, that, that they're in it to do about is uh, about this question of how, um, uh, pro-choice Catholic politicians ought to be engaged with regard to the Eucharist. I disagree. Well, you would. Yeah. I think you've got it exactly backwards. I know you do not. I don't think you think that. Well, hear me out. Then you tell me whether you think I'm shining you on or not. Okay. I think that Jill Biden is the proxy. That this is actually a fight about theology. This is a fight about whether or not it matters that you believe that it's acceptable to or even laudable to legally terminate innocent life in the womb, whether or not it matters, whether you're in a grave state of manifest sin, whether it is your uh, your moral cooperation in bringing legal abortion or strengthening legal abortion, or whether it is some living in a state of objective sin another way, whether it's cohabiting outside of marriage or something yes. else. Joe Biden is is the proxy, is the poster boy, is is the whatever on this. The fight is actually deeply theological among right. the bishops, I would yeah, say. There yeah, are I bishops who, have, yeah. who hold and believe everything that the catechism and the magisterium of the church teaches, and there are those who would like to see those things changed and who don't believe that you need to be in a state of grace to receive communion, otherwise do yourself grave or spiritual harm. think that it's time for a, a, a paradigm shift, if you will, or who, who have introduced no, 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 this no, notion. No, 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 That's a BS word. It's not a <laughs> no, paradigm no, no. shift. I'm quoting, when you I'm say quoting, I'm manifest quoting, grave quoting, sin is not I'm sin. Quoting. No, 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 you know that I'm quoting, I'm making, I'm quoting a bishop who's actually, yeah. yeah. And I'm saying that bishops who say, oh no, if you live in an extramarital sexual union, of course you should receive the Eucharist because that's not really sinful. And because, or because we don't want to persecute. So I, I agree with you. I'm very glad and that you said that. if you believe in a woman's right. right to so-called Biden, choose, that's not right. sinful. That's a personal moral choice. Right. Of course the, you should. This or, is a or theological it's sinful, argument. But we don't want to be, or it's sort of th- sinful, but we don't want to be, you know, we don't want to be the heavy about it. You know, no, it's not even we don't want to be the heavy about it. It's about, or yeah, we don't it's want sinful. To we don't actually believe sin has any effect. No, we, Hell well, is empty and judgment is suspended. So I think you're right. Biden is a proxy for a far broader um, theological debate, and I, I'm glad you said that. Biden, Biden is a proxy for a far greater theological debate, and um, and for a f- for f- far greater divergences of sort of honest to God perspectives about what the content of the faith is, the way in which it matters uh, on these issues, and also like there's a lot of talk about like how do we uh, how do we you know bring someone to conversion? You know that's what 
Dolan has always said, like, well, I don't think that denying someone from the Eucharist will, will bring someone to conversion. And and I've, I've, I've not always been sure the degree to which that's a lot of t- talk, too, or whether they're—I do think there's a disagreement. There's been a disagreement for quite some time in the Church uh, about sort of what the notion of evangelization is, what the notion of sort of proclam- proclamation of the gospel is, and, and, and especially— there's a huge disagreement about what spiritual authority means, and what being a, a, in a position of spiritual authority means, and what ha- and what sort of exercising the ministry of a bishop means. Is a bishop does a bishop exercise authority that is sort of merely propositional, or does a bishop exercise a- authentically um, paternal authority for the sake of salvation? So there are coercive authority. Yeah, coercive authority. Thank you. Right, which which you know, you and I, Ed, I don't know if anyone said this to you before, but you and I are a couple of dads, Ed. We exercise coercive authority, and rightly so, right? Ordered for the good of our children. And, told that uh, I, I'm told that it's theoretically within my gift, but I've yet to successfully <laughs> exercise it with anyone, I can assure well, you. Well, that's because your baby's not born yet. But, you know, then once your baby's born, then you can exercise coercive authority for your baby's salvation. Um, and we, we won't talk about... <laughs> We won't talk about authority in marriage. That's a bad idea. Um, oh, no. We'll leave that to crazy bishops with <laughs> yeah, GoFundMes. Right, exactly. But the point is... Th- Sorry, I meant crazy this, priests with GoFundMes. Yeah, I beg your pardon. <laughs> for the moment. There's for also the moment. This, for the moment. <laughs> there's also this, you know, huge debate. You know, not debate, but just hugely divergent perspectives about what it is to have authority and to exercise it. And, and I think that's, you know, uh, I, the, one of the great crises, I think, of sort of the... the uh, the post-war era and and following is a reluctance of parents to be parents, and I think that's led to a lot of uh, a lot of social problems and, and blah blah blah. Anyway, the point is, you're right. Yeah, Biden is a proxy for these broader things, which are theological. And at the end of the day, the question about like whether or not you think that there will be a final judgment and some people will go to heaven and some people will go to hell figures into all of that. It seems to me, or at least why someone might go to heaven or might go to hell, like. I think it's entirely possible that a person might believe that there will be a final judgment. Some people go to heaven and some people go to hell, but, but not think like, but think like, oh, but the sort of the rules of the church are an imposition on sort of the question of whether you're, you know, fundamentally a good person or something like that, which I think that, I think that is a a heresy called the fundamental option that I think has been decried a few times in the life of the church. But anyway, the point is, um, yeah, I think there are all these things that are underlying the debate about this, but it's not, it, it is not, the debate is not some bishops think that we should publish a catechetical document on the Eucharist and some bishops don't think we should publish one because we don't need one or something like that. And, and Biden is a lot, uh, while Biden is the representative of all those things, Biden is a proxy for all those things. And a fight over Canon 915 is actually a fight over all this other stuff that bishops don't agree about in the church. And I think probably two radically different senses of what it is to be church, if you will. Um, Um, the fight Careful. that's going on is about is a question about whether the conference will assert a position on all of that or not. And, uh, you know, those who I think don't want the conference to assert a position on that, I think don't want it because they don't want the headlines that suggest bishops say Biden shouldn't go to communion because of, you know, the sociopolitical reasons that go along with that. But also because they would, li- I think there are bishops who would like that and who have said as much, actually, so I'm not just speculating, who would like the conference to express uh, the, a theological position that I suspect remains in the minority. Let me offer um, just a hypothetical. Do it. Is it possible that a group of bishops do not wish for the matter of so-called Eucharistic coherence to be discussed or debated because Cardinal Ladarius said very clearly in his letter that there are certain non-negotiable ethical principles, his words, not mine, 
non-negotiable ethical principles, which the U.S. bishops should unanimously affirm at the level of the conference, and they dissent from those non-negotiable ethical principles, and they do not wish to be put in a position where they are forced to manifest it publicly. It is possible. We do not know, because I do not know of a bishop in the United States who has manifested publicly dissent from the, you know, who has and manifested in an explicit way dissent from, and no one would want to, right? So you'd want to be, you know, you'd want to avoid this, the, the near occasion to dissent, as it were. I, I, I think that's possible. I mean, again, it's purely speculative. And what I don't it's like, a hypothetical. I what said I it was really a hypothetical. don't like people doing is saying like, oh, well, those bishops on the uh, the side of this debate that I don't endorse, they don't believe in God. You know, I don't like that. I, no, I think that's, that's nonsense. Uh, totally, wholly unproductive and nonsense and just... Uh, um, yeah, level of sort of uh, ad hominem that is destructive, but yeah, and it, it is a it is a possibility that those who you know f- would feel in conscience that they could not affirm those things which Ladaria said would need to be affirmed would want to avoid the discussion to be sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. just putting it out there. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, it's <laughs> the 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 sort of like spin that on the one side, like, well, we just want to put out a thing on Eucharistic coherence, and the thing that the spin on the other side that's like. Well, we just think we need to take more time to talk about this all together. And, you know, uh, both of those are glosses that are not wholly admitting. And I think this is the reason, uh, and I'm just kind of coming to this, but I think this is the reason. There is uh, a reluctance, and I think some bishops are moving away from this, but there is habitually a reluctance to admit of the kind of deeply seated theological and ecclesiological differences among the bishops that we are talking about right now. There is a grave hesitancy to say, well, Bishop so-and-so and and I just see the church, the world, the gospel, um, the catechism in radically different ways. Now, what's really interesting about this, and the reason why I'm glad this debate is coming to the fore, the reason why I'm glad we've been able to report on sort of some of these differences, the reason why I'm glad that we we talked to Archbishop Cordelioni, who expressed an opinion about it yesterday, and we're trying to talk to other bishops. We asked Bishop McElroy, who's on the other side of the debate, if we could have a long interview with him too, because I'd really like to talk to bishops on all sides of this. But the the what what at least some bishops seem to be doing is moving away from this sort of tendency, which strikes me as being both clericalistic and paternalistic, to say like, oh no no no, mommy and daddy aren't really fighting, everything's fine, and to say no, I think that what just happened is wrong. And you know, whatever side they're on, Archbishop Cordelioni said yesterday, I'm appalled by what I see as backroom politicking, and I think this is wrong. Well, cool, call it. You know what I mean? Own it. Um, but this sort of like, mom, don't worry, mommy, daddy aren't fighting. You're just going to have, you know, two Christmases and one's going to be real liberal and one's going to be real conservative. And that's how it is. It's not realistic. You know what I mean? And, and two ascensions, who, I think would probably be with you. Yeah. That's been, yeah. <laughs> that's probably, thank you. Yeah. You're going to go to, you're going to go to dad's house on Thursday and mom's house on Sunday. Um, but uh, I don't know how many people who listen to our show got that joke, but those who did, I hope you that know was what? funny. The yeah. ones who got it. Those are my favorite listeners. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Anywho, um, yeah, I mean, I think it is important for for the church to own, in reality, the things which are impediments to to Christian unity, and and to discuss in reality the theological differences that um, that that riddle the church in the United States, to be sure, and the ways in which those play out uh, in differences among bishops and in in differences in policy and praxis on various things. I think it is far better to own that because anybody who lives the church sees it anyway. The problem is that people see it in distorted ways. And I think that when bishops aren't honest about, I think that when bishops aren't kind of honest about that, um, about that theological dispute and seem to be obscuring the reality of what they're discussing, that's when you get more easily sort of the rise of 
internet phenomenon, yeah. YouTube folk Because everyone saying, knows oh, that what they're seeing is different from He's what they're not, being told right. they're seeing. Exactly. And that's when people it, say, oh, well, you see, this well, is the big yeah. lie. So you and can't trust can... any of them. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. It is far better This is the big say, lie. Donate now. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I, from, yeah, it is far better to say what's true. And, you know, and look, it, it can be said in charity. Look, Bishop so-and-so and I do not agree on this theologically. And, um, you know, there's going to be a debate. Part of that debate is going to be in public. Part of that debate is going to be an executive session because we bishops really need to work this out. And truthfully, we probably need to pray about it more together. But yeah, at the end of the day, Bishop so-and-so and I just don't agree about this. I think that is far more healthy and far more helpful to people who practice the faith than everything's fine. We just want to put out a thing on the Eucharist and we don't even know why it's controversial or everything's fine. We just want to wait six months or eight months or nine months before we start talking about it because, you know, uh, that's just, we just think it would be better. Neither of those things are telling we the, have been what's happening. talking about and writing about the damage done by fake gestures of unity at the USCCB mm-hmm. for as long as I have been in Catholic journalism. Right. It's exactly right. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I think there's a cultural thing that, a sort of cultural tendency or disposition to sort of protect the institution or protect the reputation or the perceived reputation of the institution. But, you know, and there's a desire, I think, too, and a very good desire, a very healthy desire to avoid sort of turning the church's episcopate into into a sort of merely political reality in which it's like, well, these are are the guys in this part, you know, these are the federalists and these are the anti-federalists or sort of these are the these are the communicists and these are the anti-communicists, although in the history of the church there have been certainly those kinds of divisions and they've been named and identified in those kinds of things. I think there's a desire to help people see that um, the communion of the church goes deeper even than rather serious theological disagreement. Um, but, uh, but, but you can't... The lesson of the last four years of the, in the church for me is um, you can't spin... You can't successfully spin what is manifestly evident to everyone, nor should you try. And it is not an authentic act of pastoral leadership to spin the truth. Absolutely. Yeah. So. That was a good chat. Yeah, it was a good chat. What's going to happen? I think it's going to stay on the agenda. I think they're going to have a sort of, I think that people are going to make points during the during the public session and some of those points are going to be, well, we need to take a lot, we need to take a lot more time to talk about this and some others, well, there's an urgency to this. I suspect that in executive session, there's going to be far more discussion about it. But the truth is that the ones who don't want to see it passed, in my view, my read of the cards of the thing is the ones who don't want to see it, who don't want to see the document drafted right now for the reason, whatever reasons it is, don't have the votes. And I suspect that it'll be closer than a lot of people are comfortable with. And you know, the voice of cardinals saying we shouldn't be doing this is going to hold sway with a lot of bishops. It'll be closer than many, many people think. But at the end of the day, I think the conference is going to pass. We should draft this document. And then yeah. the real interesting thing will be... In November. In November when people are proposing yeah. uh, amendments to the thing and all that. Yeah, there will be some performative pearl clutching um, right. on, at the online meeting in June. You know, I'm horrified that people would misconstrue... Uh, I'm shocked uh, to find there's politicking going on. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. absolutely aghast that anyone would think that, you know, my private letter writing campaign trying to pressure people into changing their minds and doing what I told them would be misconstrued to think I was pressuring them. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm horrified that anyone would think... I think there will be right. a lot of that. But, you know, again, this is supposed to be a group of not just, you know, grown men. This is supposed to be a group of fearless, you know, successors to the apostles. Um, so hopefully we'll see a bit of that too. Yeah, whatever what theological position you hold, this is what I would hope. Whatever theological position you hold, I would hope that you would hold it 
with the zeal and conviction that this is the truth and the truth should triumph. Now, if you don't hold a strong position and you really think like, well, we should all pray about this together as bishops, I think that's totally legitimate too. I mean, I genuinely do think that the bishops would be better served by praying about it and discussing it and bringing in experts or whatever. I don't think that all that every aspect of the sort of question about Eucharistic coherence and manifest grave sin, I think that there are questions to be answered that would be benefited by historical and systematic theological study, um, and juridical study for that matter. Um, and and, and that, that, that's a worthwhile thing. Uh, however, um, even saying that, like, look, we really wanted to like, because I don't have an opinion, that better be your honest view. If it's like, well, I, I don't have an opinion, so we better bring in a bunch of experts. If what you mean is, I don't want this, th- I want to like drag my foot on this thing as long as I possibly can, just oppose it. You know what I mean? Have the courage of that because if that's what you think is true, then you have a, an obligation and conscience to it. Let your yes mean yes. Right, no, exactly. Because no. anything uh, else exactly. comes from, remind me, I'm trying to remember. <laughs> comes from somewhere, Ed. California? <laughs> oh, gosh. I don't know. Well, no. listen, this was a good chat. Yes, it was. Yeah. All righty, buddy. Well, uh, this has been our second episode of the week. If you missed it, uh, dear listeners, and we're taping this episode on Wednesday, by the way. We usually tape the episode on Thursday. The reason I'm telling you that is because if something happens on Wednesday, on Thursday, we didn't talk about it on the show, and now you know why. We may well put this show out on Thursday. It just depends, I suppose, on um, the the ability of uh, of us to get it produced, the ability of it to be produced with uh, with alacrity or, or not. Um, but we put out a bonus episode this week, an interview with Archbishop Cordelioni, and... Uh, um, uh, I did not write a game. And the reason I didn't write a game, Ed, is that Mrs. Flynn this morning uh, went to Chicago for the graduation of her little sister from high school. Her little sister is the valedictorian. I'm very proud of her. But, uh, but that means that I am uh, mostly being a parent right now. I stepped away to do the show, but I'm mostly sort of being a parent. So I wanted to write a game, but it didn't happen, my friend. I, I think you have your priorities exactly in order. <laughs> well, I don't know. I just couldn't. Yeah. All right. Cool. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media, an Ed and JD apostolate. I'm your host. <laughs> Ed's giving me a funny look because I don't usually say apostolate, but I think this is our uh, an apostolic work on our part. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> you're, you're skeptical. No, I'm just conscious that there are legal and canonical ramifications to identifying as an apostolate. I don't think that's so. I mean, I think if we said ministry, but, uh, you know, an apostolate is a, an apostolate is a sort of work of the baptized for the building up of the body of Christ or the proclamation of the kingdom. And I think that's what we're doing here. I like to consider my work an apostolate. I'm sure you consider your work an apostolate. Pillar Media is a media company. Okay, fair Just enough. for legal reasons, I want to make yeah, it clear. For, yes, it is. It is, it is indeed. A, a media company, which does prioritize, I would say, which does prioritize our, our apostolic work over other things, right? I mean, which is a primarily... Stop trying for to beat same. me into something that could turn into a legal problem for us. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see how it could, but anyhow. That's why I'm concerned. If I could see it, I wouldn't be worried. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and J.D., Project. I'm your host and pillar editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting uh, and project partner, Ed Condon, and we will be back next week. It's 5.30. I'm going to start drinking. <laughs> Peace. <laughs>